This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation, Andy Goodman reveals how to harness the power of storytelling for your cause from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor-Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Let's start with a true story, like you see here. Uh, this is a story that, for everyone in this room, is more than just a true story. This is a cautionary tale with an unhappy ending. But I think it's something that everybody in this room should hear. This is a story of a man whom I think many of you are going to recognize. And here he is. Do you know who that man is? Who is he? Maytag Repairman. That's right. This guy has been with us, believe it or not, talking to you from our televisions for more than 30 years. What's the most distinguishing characteristic of the Maytag Repairman? He doesn't work. He's lonely. In fact, the character in advertising parlance is known as Old Lonely. He's lonely. He's got nothing to do. Why does he have nothing to do? Because Maytags work so well, because they're so darn reliable. Your dishwashers, your washing machines, your refrigerators, they just don't break down, so nobody calls the repairman. So he sits around all day, chin in hand. He's lonely. This character has been so popular that it's been around for more than 30 years. It started with this guy, Jesse White, who started doing the character in 1967. And in the year 1989, he was replaced by, he was, oh, sorry, he was replaced by this gentleman, uh, Gordon Jump. And the character has really become an American icon up there with um, you know, Ronald McDonald and uh, Smokey the Bear and other advertising spokespeople. So everybody knows who this person is. Well, here's where the story gets interesting. In the year 2000, after this character has been with us for so many years, Maytag sales started to slow down. And what the company found and what their advertising agency found was that dependability was no longer such a distinguishing characteristic among dishwashers and washers and dryers, etc. They were all pretty dependable. And so they thought that they needed to introduce something else, to tell the story slightly differently. And they wanted to tell a story about Maytag being a leader in innovation because they were putting more bells and whistles on their washers and dryers, etc., and they had a true story to tell. But their advertising research showed them that this old fella could not be a good spokesperson for innovation, that they didn't believe that Americans would not find an older guy as a credible representative 
of innovation. And so in the year 2000, they introduced a second character, and there he is. And now if you see the commercials, there are two Maytag repairmen. There's the younger guy who talks about innovation, and there's the older guy who talks about reliability, and the conflict between the two of them drives the commercials. But the moral of the story, as far as Maytag is concerned, in their agency, Leo Burnett USA, is that old people, not good spokespeople for innovation. They're just not credible. How do you like that? <laughs> and I start with this story because we're not going to let the story end there. This is why I'm here to tell, talk to you today about telling our stories. Because you have powerful stories to tell as well. And it's my belief that storytelling is the single most powerful communications tool that we have. And then if we collect our stories and we tell our stories, it's what's going to define and lead and make this movement happen. So that's what I want to talk to you about, and that's what we want to work on from now until 10.30 this morning. And we're going to do it in three parts. First, I want to answer this question, what is it about narrative that makes it so powerful? I believe storytelling is powerful. Some of you may, but by the time I'm finished, I want everybody in this room to be nodding their heads and saying, yes, you're right. I want you all to be under my spell. Storytelling, incredibly powerful. That then leads to the question, well, what are our stories? What stories should we be telling? And that's when I'm going to turn it back to you and we're going to do a little exercise at your tables where you'll have a chance to do some storytelling. And then we'll finish by asking really the key question, which I think looms over this entire summit, which is how do we use stories to build this movement? How do we lead here, leave here with not just people doing wonderful things, but people leading a movement that 70 million other people will follow? So that's our agenda this morning for the next uh, hour and a half. So first question, why is narrative so powerful? Take, can you all read that? Take a moment to read that for yourselves. I think that there are four factors at work here. There is our history as a species that has made us a storytelling, storytelling people. There is your identity, which is comprised of stories. Literally, who you are is just a group of stories. There are the cultures that we belong to, which are just stories we all agree are true. And there's the fact that stories help us remember. So let's look a little more closely at each of those. First, there's history. We have literally been telling stories for tens of thousands of years, from the earliest forms of humankind around the earliest fires. We've been gathering and telling stories. You know, at the end of that big woolly mammoth hunt, when we brought the mammoth down and we were sitting around the fire and eating it, do you remember that, sitting around the fire eating that mammoth, how good that was, how tasty? The leader of the clan did not say to Og, who led the hunt, hey, Og, great job leading the hunt. Can I see the PowerPoint presentation on that one? No, he said, tell us the story. Tell us the story of what you did so we can capture it and we can pass it along to all members of the clan and down through the generations. Well, you do that for a few hundred generations, a few thousand generations, and you get a species, us, whose brain has literally evolved to look for narrative. That when information comes at you, you're kind of nodding, uh-huh, 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 until you hear the cue of a story and someone says to you, oh, did you hear what Mark said yesterday? Or do you know what Lynn did just down the hall? Or a funny thing happened to me driving to work, and all of a sudden you're paying attention again because it's a story. If you don't believe me, let me throw an expert at you. Dr. Stephen Jay Gould, the eminent biologist, paleontologist, essayist, he said that storytelling is so central to who we are as a species that he called humankind the primate who tells stories. 
Not the primate who paints or the primate who buries its dead, the primate who tells stories. This is our distinguishing characteristic. And other anthropologists have weighed in and said, we have seen civilizations through thousands of years, societies that never had the wheel, but we've never seen a society that didn't tell stories. So it's part of our history. And that long history is also echoed in your personal history because hopefully as a child, as a child, your parents read to you, and they read you stories when you were old enough to string together a language. And you started to realize that things have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There are heroes and villains, there's good and evil. And this is how you started to organize information, and this is what you look for. This is what we all look for in information coming at us. Interestingly, one of the stories that was read to you as a child, and that you may have shared with your kids, has something to say about storytelling that a lot of people forget, and that's the story of Peter Pan. Everybody knows the story of Peter Pan, right? You know that Peter and the Lost Boys, they live in Neverland and they don't grow up? Have you ever wondered yourself, why don't they grow up? Why, why don't they physically age? In the original text by J.M. Barry, Wendy asked Peter, she says, why don't you grow up? And he answers her. There is an answer to that question about why they don't age. And I, I go to groups around the country talking about this, and I ask, does anybody know why they don't grow up? And I get some great answers. When I spoke at the CDC, somebody said, poor nutrition. <laughs> it's, not, it's not poor nutrition. Uh, I spoke in Phoenix to a group of women philanthropists. The room was about this big. It was all women. I said, why don't they grow up? And someone said, because they're all men. <laughs> Which I personally resent. Does anybody know? Why don't they grow up? They don't want to. They don't want to. That's true, but, but there's something that they avoid doing as a result of that. Wendy asked Peter, why don't you grow up? And he says to her in the original text, I don't know any stories. And he goes on to explain that to know and to tell stories is to become an adult, is to enter the civilized world. And they didn't want to do that, so they didn't know him, they didn't learn him, they didn't tell him. I think this is uh, incredibly interesting, but also ironic, because as we become adults, as we enter the civilized world, as we put on the garb of our profession, we stop telling stories, because we think that it is too soft, it's informal, it is by definition anecdotal. And so instead, we use the jargon and the technical language and the PowerPoint and the graphs and the charts, and we stop doing something that is so essentially human. So number one, history is on the side of storytelling. Second, your identity is comprised of stories. Here's your brain. Here are some of the stories inside it. Roger Shank wrote an excellent book called Tell Me a Story that I commend to you. He said this, we tell stories to describe ourselves, not only so others can understand who we are, but also so we can understand ourselves. Telling our stories allows us to compile our personal mythology, and the collection of stories we've compiled is to some extent who we are. In fact, he came up with a neat formula. He said, you are the stories you want to tell minus the stories that nobody wants to hear anymore, which leaves the stories you tell. <laughs> and if you think about this, if you want to do something fun later today or tonight, take out a piece of paper and write at the top of it the top 10 stories I tell about myself or my family or my spouse. And if you can't remember the titles of stories, just tap your spouse and she will remember for you. <laughs> or he will remember for you, because it's like, well, it's this story and that story. But while you may think, well, this is just me starting a new job, or meeting new people, or moving to a new town, this is what I do, what Shank says is, this is you reminding you who you really are. 
So your identity, wrapped up in storytelling, wrapped up in narrative. There are also stories in your brain that are put there because you're part of a culture. And the best example I can give you of this is in Robert Reich's book called Tales of a New America. The former labor secretary wrote this book in 1987. Um, he has a fascinating theory, and that is this. He says, to be an American is to have four stories guiding your life, affecting your life whether you know it or not, and they have affected American life from colonial days until today. The same four stories, different places, different players, but the same four stories. So wouldn't you like to know what those stories are? Well, the first one he calls the mob at the gates. And what Reich says is, says, says ever since the 1500s, we've been telling stories that say that we must always be on guard against people from the outside who would threaten our city on a hill, threaten to take away our liberty. And that we must be vigilant in its defense or we'll lose you know, our precious freedoms. And the first time we told this story, we told it about the British monarchy. We've told it about communists. We've told it about fascists. We've told it about drug dealers. Who's the mob at the gates today? Right, we tell it about terrorists. Last group I was with, somebody said Walmart. I guess it depends where you're coming from. <laughs> terrorists. The second story is a story he calls the triumphant individual. And this one you'll recognize. This is the Horatio Alger stories, the up from nothing stories. I came here with a nickel in my pocket and today I'm a billionaire. We love to tell stories that say anyone can make it in America. If you want to see this played out weekly on television, just watch American Idol. That's what this is. That's the, that is the triumphant individual. These are also stories of redemption, of lives turned around. I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and today I'm, you know, president of the United States, or whatever. You know, <laughs> redemption stories. <laughs> Welcome to California. <laughs> the third story he calls the benevolent community. And the idea here is that we are a good people. We are a fair people. We will uplift the poor. We will heal the sick. We build barns together. We love to tell stories that say that we take care of each other. Interestingly, to show you how powerful this story is in American life, when this story is absent, when we cannot tell this story, it is conspicuous in its absence. And the best example of this, look at the aftermath after Hurricane Katrina. Where was the benevolent community? Where was FEMA? Where was everyone there who was supposed to be helping? They weren't there. That was a big story, coast to coast. The fourth story he calls rot at the top. And the idea here is that we must always be on guard against corruption from within, whether it's corporate corruption or um, uh, political corruption. So what makes this interesting is that Reich says this isn't just a parlor game, that depending on who's in power and which of these stories they choose to emphasize, explicitly or implicitly, it affects policy, it affects the way money is spent, and that means it affects us, ultimately. And the example he gives in 1985, when Ronald Reagan was president, Reich says that Reagan defined the war on drugs as the mob at the gates. That there were evil people pushing drugs in this country. If we could stop them at the borders, that's how we would defeat the problem. And so we spent $2.1 billion on interdiction in 1985. But Reich asks, what if instead our president said, this is a problem for the benevolent community? that we have people among us who are sick, who are addicted, who need drugs, and through uh, health care and counseling and education, we can lower the demand, and then we don't have to worry about where it's coming from. Let the benevolent community take care of the people among them who are sick. But he didn't say that. So while we spend 2.1 billion on interdiction, 
Department of Education got 1.2 million for drug education. So look at the difference. A nice pop culture note to sum it all up. I'm sure you're familiar with the movie It's a Wonderful Life. This always shows around the holidays. People say this is the quintessential American movie. Well, Reich says you're darn right it's the quintessential American movie because all four stories are operative in this movie. You know, you have George Bailey's brother who goes off to fight the Germans in World War II, the mob at the gates at the time. George Bailey, Jimmy Stewart's character, is the triumphant individual, uplifted at the end by the benevolent community that gives him back the money that his uncle lost, remember? And that saves him from being bought out by the evil, uh, evil Mr. Potter, the banker, right at the top. So there it is, it's all there. So the next time this is on, you can poke somebody next to you and show them how smart you are. <laughs> so history, identity, culture, and lastly, memory. Stories help us remember. And a study that speaks to this was done in 1975 with five-year-olds. And here's how it worked. They got a room full of five-year-olds, and they said to them, kids, we're going to read you 21 pairs of objects, a list of 21 pairs of objects, and we want to see how well you can remember them. So here we go. Soap and shoe, fence and sky, paint and grass, and on and on and on, 21 pairs. And the kids are all sitting there listening as well as they can for five. They say, all right, now go outside and play for an hour. They go outside and play for an hour. They bring them back. They sit them down. All right, let's test them. Let's see how well you remember the 21 pairs. Soap and, fence and, etc. Out of 21 pairs, how many of you think the kids were able to remember one hour later? Five-year-olds. One is a good guess. It's exactly right. One out of 21 pairs remembered. Send them out of the room. Let's bring in another group of five-year-olds. Same 21 pairs, but this time we're going to give them a different, uh, a different uh, uh, explanation. We're going to say, we're going to give you 21 pairs, but we'd like you to take each pair and put it into a sentence for everyone to hear. So, so little Tommy in the front row, take soap and shoe and put it in a sentence for everyone in the room to hear. And Tommy stands up and says, the soap is in my shoe. Excellent, excellent future novelist. They do this for 21 sentences. Everybody walks out of the room. They come back an hour later. They sit down. They test them again. Now, how do you think they did? Same, better, worse? What do you think? They did better. Eight out of 21 pairs remembered. Third group of five-year-olds, they get in the room. Same thing, but this time they say, let's put these two things in a sentence that asks a question. Soap and shoe in a sentence that asks a question. So five-year-old Becky in the front row, put it in a sentence that asks a question. Who put the soap in my shoe? Fine. 21 questions. The kids go out. They play for an hour. They come back. They test them again. Now how'd they do? Same? Better? Worse? What do you think? Much better. 16 out of 21 pairs remembered. And these are just five-year-olds, okay? Same, same kinds of kids here. So look at these results side by side by side. Let me ask you. What do you think the clinicians concluded was happening in these kids' brains by virtue of asking a question? that was happening not so much by just having them put in a sentence and not at all by just reading the pairs. What was happening? They're thinking, keep going, keep going further. What, what do you mean thinking? What's that? They're answering the question. Who put the soap in my shoe? Well, it must have been Tommy while I wasn't looking. This is the way we are as human beings. When we're asked a question, we invariably will posit an answer, whether we say it or just think it. This is just the way we are. This is why so much advertising asks questions. 
You know, you're driving down the highway, you pass a billboard, it says, wouldn't you like to be in Paris right now? And you think, yes, yes, I would. <laughs> you know? And you practically drive off the road because you're suddenly down the Champs-Élysées. But the point is, they ask these kids a question, and they started to answer it, and a rudimentary story starts to form in their brain about somebody putting soap in their shoe, or painting the grass, or what have you. And these stories go in these five-year-old brains, these brains that have evolved over millions of years that love stories, and they store them, and they go outside and play for an hour, and when they come back, they give them a keyword like soap, or paint, or what have you, and the kids go, soap, soap. Oh, oh, Tommy put the soap in my shoe. Shoe, that's it, soap in shoe, and they got the pair. And the moral of this story is that when you have facts that you want people to remember, it is much more likely they will remember those facts when they are embedded in a story than if you just give them the facts. If you just spool out numbers and statistics, things like that, they roll away. But facts in a story, they're going to remember the story. Stories help us remember. So history, identity, culture, and memory, all on the side of storytelling. Are there any skeptics in the room? Anybody thinking, I'm not convinced? They don't think this is the most powerful form of communication? Are you all with me? You all with me? Yeah. All right. What are our stories? What do we do with this? Well, that's what I want to do now for the next half hour. I want you guys to tell your stories. And there's a certain kind of story I want you to tell working at your tables. Remember I showed you this before? This is the key story, the why I do what I do story. I believe that everybody has one of these. Everybody has a story about why they've chosen to do the work that they do, particularly people in this room. A lot of people who go to work every day and if they're just banging away at a keyboard or sorting and filing, they may not have given this much thought, but I cannot believe that the people in this room have not given this some thought. And I'm curious, was there a moment where somebody said something to you? Was there something you saw? Was it an accumulation of things? Was it just that you had no other choices, as Akanchi said to me last night, I had to do this? What's your why I did what I did story, why I do what I do? To give you an example of the form, let me tell you mine very quickly, because these stories don't need to go on forever. They can be told in a couple of minutes. I work with public interest groups all around the country encouraging them to tell stories. This is why. A few years ago, I went to work with a group in Portland, Oregon called Friends of the Children. Does anybody know this group, Friends of the Children? Excellent organization. And I went to them because I got a call from them, like many of the calls I get, we're real good at what we do, we're not so good at talking about it. So I said, great, let me come and, and, and meet you and find out what you do. Well, what they do is they work with kids who have really been you know, dealt a, a, uh, a bad hand, at-risk youth, to use the jargon, and they match up these kids in first grade with a friend, not a volunteer, a paid professional, who will work with that child four hours a week, week in and week out, getting them to school on time, doing their homework with them, getting them home, just being that solid adult presence that they often lack. And they will start working with that child in first grade through 12th grade. We're talking about a commitment through elementary school, middle school, and high school. And with the depth and scope of that intervention, they're seeing lives turn around that otherwise could have ended up in uh, jail, on the street, or worse. So you have a sense of what they do? Okay. Here's the problem. When Catherine Milton was executive director, and I went to work with her, and she had come from Save the Children, so she had run major organizations, she would go out and talk to groups about what they do. And she'd talk to rooms like this filled with potential partners or funders, parents, potential friends, what have you. 
and she would put up her PowerPoint presentation to talk about her organization and to explain what they do. And here was slide one. And she would dutifully turn and face the screen and say, Friends of the Children is an intervention program for the most vulnerable children living in seriously high-risk environments. Our vision is one in which teachers and firefighters, and we were on our way through a 60-slide presentation. I want to tell you, even a room full of atheists will say, oh my God. <laughs> slide two. Now, she also had a slide, which is my favorite, for what she calls the, the theory of change. Are you all familiar with that term? What's your theory of change? That's the modern technology, modern jargon for we know what we're doing. And she would put up her theory of change slide, which is my all-time favorite. <laughs> I'll give you a minute to read it. <laughs> so I said to her, um, she said, actually, she said to me, so I'm having trouble connecting with audiences. <laughs> and so I said, uh, all right, well, let's, let's throw this away, and let's do this. I'm an outsider coming in. I want to learn about your organization. Can you just tell me a story of somebody that you worked with so I can, get, I can see it at the ground level and get a feeling for what we're talking about here? And then we'll step back and we'll look at the numbers and the metrics, but let's start there. She said, well, that's easy. I'll tell you the story about TR. And she told me the story of one young man who had been through the program. And by the end of the story, I said to her, while wiping away a tear, I said, Catherine, from now on, when you go out and talk to groups, start with that story. So she threw away her slides. And I want to show you what became her new slide one. And it's this picture right here. And she would tell audiences that this is TR, a young man from their program. And then when they met him in second grade and interviewed him to see if he would be a good candidate for their program, he told them that he was living in northeast Portland in a neighborhood with gangs and crime and drugs, just a horrible neighborhood. His mom was on welfare. His dad was absent. In first grade, the year before, he had been suspended 22 times in one year. Think about that, 22 times. But the biggest indication of where he was at as a human being are those three words. They asked him, TR, what were you like in first grade? And he said, I was bad. I mean, here is a kid who is almost believing in his heart that he's a bad kid, and you've got to know that the battle's almost over at that point. So they paired him, they took him in the program, and they paired him with this guy, Zach Harris. And Zach became his friend four hours a week, week in and week out, taking care of him, getting him to school, getting him home, doing his homework with him. And they saw his life, Zach saw his life, this life turning around. But he also saw that what he was doing, as much as it was, wasn't enough. Because when he brought him home, he was basically handing him back to the gangs. So he realized he had to go one step further. He had to talk to the gang leaders, which he did. And I want to read you his words, because I can't say it any better. I recall going to the gang members one day. I will never forget the lump that I felt in my belly. This one gentleman had to be about 6'2". He's staring me right in the face, and he said, may I help you? And I said, little TR here, he's mine now. He's going to be OK. And I'd appreciate it if every day he came home that you would send him into the house and not allow him to hang out with the guys anymore. And from that day, that's just what they did. They realized that this was a kid who actually had a chance. Well, that was more than 10 years ago. TR went on to be starting fullback for Jefferson High School, number two in this picture, recruited by Division I colleges all around the country, offered full scholarships, many different universities, took his SATs, 
had trouble, didn't do so well, had to take him again, but still had his friends in his life, and eventually did well enough to get into the University of Oregon, where he is now starting his junior year. And they're so proud of this young man, they put him on the cover of their newsletter, and that's him now, a man, with the words, living a dream, above his head. And Catherine Milton said to me that this is just one story, a story of a life turned around, in this case, primarily through athletics, but they're doing it through academics, through the arts, through vocational training, whatever it takes, and they're turning around hundreds of lives around the country. And she told me, and the reason I tell you this story, is because now, when Friends of Children goes out, this is what they do, they tell stories, and it has transformed the way the organization works, and the way that they reach out to people, and the way they communicate. And this is why I do what I do, because I go into these organizations doing wonderful work, and I see them putting up the PowerPoint and quoting you know, statistics and graphs, and when they start telling stories, things start to change, and people start to get it, and they start to care, and then they want to know the larger story. So that's why I'm doing what I do. But enough about me. Now comes the part where we need some courage and leadership. What I'd like to do is to see if some people here would share their stories with the entire room. I'm sure at your tables you heard some good stories. If you'd like to help me and all point at the person who had the great story that needs to be shared, you can do that. But I'd like some volunteers. We have about 15 minutes for just some group storytelling. And if you've, if you've had this experience of having a, a group of 100 plus people sit and listen to one person tell a story, it can be very powerful. So where is our brave, courageous volunteer who wants to go first and share his or her story of, of why they do what they do? You're out there somewhere, I know. Right here. We have uh, Doug and, and Gabriel have the microphone, so Doug, bring this right over here. And you know, Doug, I'll bring the microphone to you. Stay where you are. And, and if you can, brief and brilliant. <laughs> is brief 10 minutes? Is this working? Is, is my microphone? Oh, is it on? I don't know. Is it on? Thank please, you. <laughs> for the people who don't know you, please introduce yourself and where you're from, and then it's all yours. Good morning. My name is Rick Cochin. I'm the founder and CEO of Stand Up For Kids. We're a national organization, all volunteers who go to the streets and help homeless and street kids. And my story is, I spent 30 years in the United States Navy. I traveled all over the world, and we just did so many things in other countries. We helped build orphanages and schools. And as I got ready to retire, I lived in San Diego. And I saw all the homeless kids on the streets there, and it really, truly just broke my heart that I lived in a country where we do so much everywhere else, and in my own country, children lived on the streets. And so I thought I couldn't be angry and upset if I wasn't going to do something about that, so I started Stand Up For Kids. We know that in the United States, a child runs away every minute, and 13 homeless children die on our streets every day. And so Stand Up For Kids in the last 16 years have built 37 programs in 20 states. We're all volunteers. I do have seven people that I pay. And we're committed to going to the streets and helping children. And we say to them, if there's one thing Stand Up For Kids could do for you today, what would that be? And trying to address their needs. We look at homelessness for the same for adults as we do for children. If an adult was to become homeless, they've really truly had a life. They've moved around, had a family probably, had jobs, automobiles, cars, whatever. But when a child becomes homeless, they have no family, no church, no community, no school, no neighbors. They're not homeless, they're lifeless. So you have to go to the streets and find them and help them put a life together. And that's really what we do. Once you do that, they can solve the homelessness issue. Of all the children in the United States that are homeless, half of them are still under the age of 15. And when you're under the age of 15, you have to break the law every day if you want to eat. And I like to eat. 
And I just think all too often we have to quit looking and treat homelessness the same and really go to the streets and convince our children that we really do, we do care about them and we want them back. And that's my story. Thank you very much. <laughs> Michael, come to you. Hi, I'm Robert Chambers, uh, the president and founder of Bonnie Clack from Lebanon, New Hampshire. And why do I do what I do? Well, I worked as a, uh, as a car salesman and had an individual come into the car lot. It was, and this gentleman made about $10 an hour and he was desperate to get a car to get to work the next day. And he was sold a very old vehicle that probably had 70, 80,000 miles on it. He went into the business office of this dealership and this business office proceeded to sell him a, a very expensive extended warranty and, and got him into a very high interest loan. And as he drove off the car lot, this, he was in a finance in a, an automobile that was gonna fall apart in about a year, which was financed over five years. And the business manager came out and the salesman, and they high-fived each other because they made $5,000 in profit off this poor guy that was making $10 an hour. And I couldn't stand it. And that's why I started by clock. Thank you very much. My story is, uh, well, first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna try to, to, to tell the story the way I told the story to my colleagues. I, I had the misfortune of turning my back when that question was raised, and when I returned to the table, they said I was nominated. So here <laughs> I am, and I'll, I'll do the best I can to tell my story the way I told it to them. Um, well, that's part of my story. I'm going to get to that. Uh, my name is John Terry, and I am uh, the uh, president and founder of an organization called the Gulf of Maine Institute. Uh, so the first thing, the way I began my story was I'm going to drop a tagline. Uh, just so you know something about what I do, and then I'll move from the tagline into the story the best I know how to tell it or retell it. Some one of the old ancient Greeks said, you know, you never put your foot in the same river twice, and I think you never tell your story the same way twice either, but I'll do the best. Um, so the tagline is, uh, we work to touch, move, and inspire young people to be stewards of the earth, and specifically, in our case, the Gulf of Maine and its watershed. The story is, kind of goes like this, I had a, I, I kind of anticipated this question, I don't know how, but I, I had a little bit of an epiphany this morning uh, when I was thinking about it, which is, in a way my story is a return to my childhood, and a return to my childhood with, with a different kind of perspective and a different set of skills and another way of understanding things. I grew up in a suburb of Boston, um, in a working class neighborhood, uh, we were a poor family. We didn't have a lot of resources. Uh, we had very little of the natural world available to us immediately, but we had bicycles. And we'd go on our bicycles and we would leave and go to natural places where we would catch frogs and do all the things that uh, a lot of kids used to be able to do back in those days, but the opportunities to do them are less now. And there was a river that ran through our town called the Mystic River. Some of you might recall it from the movie about uh, pollution. Uh, and we used to have to walk by this river to go to school. And every once in a while, we'd also go there to catch frogs and fish and things like that. Every once in a while, we'd walk by and there'd be a fish kill. And you'd cross over the river and you'd see all these fishes bellied up, floating down the river, 
out to the sea. And I couldn't understand as a child why this was happening and how it could happen. Um, and felt more than powerless about doing anything about it. Um, and as I grew up, I was told to go away from my childhood things and move in the direction of getting a job, getting an education, uh, that these things, this interest in nature had to pass. So I went on, I did that, I went on, I got my degrees and my graduate degrees and I got my jobs. And I basically spent the rest of my life working with young people, uh, doing teacher training, I did some management consultant work, I was an editor of a publication, all that stuff. And when I reached 60-ish, I um, kind of got tired of working for other people. And I thought I had some ideas, and I thought I had some strength and some abilities to do something. And I had grandchildren. All of a sudden, there were these grandchildren. And I was thinking about uh, Black Elk Speaks and the need to really be concerned about seven generations out. And I really began to worry, and it began to eat up on me. What kind of world are we passing on to children if we're not going to be able to drink the water and breathe the air and eat good foods? So that brought me into doing what I do. And that's sort of my story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Gail Porter, and I'm the co-director of the Gaston and Porter Health Improvement Center. And it's funny. Um, part of my story became clear this morning. Um, we, my uh, co-director is Marilyn Gaston and we started the primetime sister circles and we started them because black women are dying at rates that are greater than any other group of women but they also are dealing with depression and stress at greater levels and we wrote a book and we started getting calls as to how can we make these changes but what I realized was an impetus that I had not put together was that both Marilyn and I have had premature deaths. My grandmother died when she was 39 years old, and that has become part of our family history. Marilyn's mother and grandmothers died prematurely. But I think what really impacted on us both, because we were both very poor, was that part of that was poverty, and we've spent our professional lives fighting poverty, increasing access. But when it came home was five years ago when one of my dearest friends, a beautician, very wealthy, very smart, living in D.C., access to all the medical care in the world, died of cervical cancer because she hadn't had a pap smear in five years. And she hadn't had a pap smear because she was so busy taking care of her family, her church, her elders, her children, her grandchildren, that she failed to take care of her. And so that is why we do what we do, because we want women to know that you've got to we have to mother ourselves in the way that we have spent most of our lives mothering everyone else. And that's the story that we want to get out to 
every single person, but certainly every single woman that we encounter. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I have to stop there, not to stop storytelling, but really just to hit the pause button, because the answer to this question, how do we use stories to build a movement, is, is just what you saw right here. We have to tell our stories, and we have to tell them at every opportunity we're given to every audience that will listen. Doing the good work is not enough if people don't know about it and can't see it as a, a path for themselves as well. So that's how we build our movement, by telling our stories. And this is not a new idea. We've seen this before with other movements where people and their stories have driven movements. Certainly we've seen it in the civil rights movement. And certainly we've seen it in the labor movement. And certainly we've seen it in the women's movement. Powerful stories of individuals transforming our culture and our nation and the world. But you have to be aware that we're not putting these stories out there in a vacuum. There are competing stories. For the 70 million baby boomers who are heading down the highway of life to a very important fork in the road, there are other stories being told. Merrill Lynch, sorry, Morgan Stanley is more than happy to tell them a story through their advertising that you're healthy, you're strong, you can keep working, you can work harder, you can make more money. The principal financial group, you're healthy, you're strong, you can play harder, you can be out there surfing or boogie boarding or bungee jumping or whatever. And there's a story we began with, the story about older people and where they are, where innovation is connected. These are the stories that are out there. They're being told millions of dollars will be invested telling these stories. We can't let these stories take hold. These are not the stories that are really true about the world. You are the truth, so it's your stories that have to be told. People need to know the story of Conchi Bredos. They need to know that story of Charlie, uh, Charlie Dye. Marilyn Gaston and Gail Porter, thank you for sharing your story. Of Wilson Good, of Judea Pearl and Akbar Ahmed, and all the others. They need to know your stories. 70 million baby boomers heading down the highway of life, heading towards a fork in the road. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this. To reach out to people and connect with them in the long run, numbers numb, jargon jars, and nobody ever marched on Washington because of a pie chart, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if we're gonna reach these people, and help them make the right decision and lead better, fuller lives for themselves and better lives for all of us, you have to tell them your stories, and I sincerely hope you will do so. Thank you very much for your time and your attention. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com.
The post-production audio engineer for this program was Rob Lepper. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.